Tim. Zach. Let me get so I can see you properly. Hello. Hi. You're in California? No, I'm in Vermont. Vermont. Oh, okay. I don't know why I assumed you were in California. I just uh, everyone cools in California, but I'm not <laughs> colder. That's <laughs> great to uh, get great to connect with you. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. So um, thanks for taking part in this conversation. I think, as I, I would have said to you in advance, I see them like private conversations, really, that we can make public for other people to enjoy. So they're my opportunity to connect with people who seem like it'd be really interesting to connect with. And because of my own kind of approach to this business of being alive, um, what I would like to do is just have a conversation, but start it off with a, a kind of, on the one hand, it sounds like a ridiculously big question, um, which, which is, and, and let me just say before I say it, often people assume that I'm asking it in a sort of philosophical way, but I'm really not, although I'm happy for it to go in that direction. I'm really asking it uh, to Zach as somebody who's alive and will get older and die. What, 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 do, you, what do you think this is that we're experiencing? And what have you what have you made of it? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, whatever it is it's it's beautiful and tragic and uh, oversaturated with meaning and significance. Um, Ooh, oversaturated. Oversaturated meaning. <clears throat> Too, too, too much meaning can be made. There's an abundance of meaning that. Uh, I love that. And so that, so there's a sense of that. There's a sense that whatever it is, <laughs> it's richly textured with meaning. Like I said, tragedy and beauty being significant kind of modalities of, of meaning. And <clears throat> so there's something there. And then there's something about what I've called in my metapsychology insolment that this is a, uh, a veil of soul making that there is, which is a phrase of Hillman's, I think, but I could be mistaken. It could be Keats or something. <clears throat> so the idea that there's that there's work to do here, and that it's that it's something like soul making work, which is another way of talking about the 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 ethical play, the kind of existential uh, relational care. It's part of what you're here to do. That's not just to absorb the beauty <laughs> or to suffer, that there's a, a work that's uniquely ones to give or a unique a gift kind of offering. So I think that's part of it. And then it's also clear that it's huge. Like it's way beyond comprehension in terms of time and space, <laughs> in terms of complexity and things of that nature. So I think of like the deep time the dawning of the deep time awareness after let's say like world war ii or something when like tiliar de Chaudan or or bindo began to like think through just what a giant incredible cosmos it is <clears throat> and that the human is part of the cosmic that the human is cosmic so that's a little bit of it and that's a very abstract philosophical answer you know in the domain of soul making then it's about being where you are, who you are, and being as giving as much care and attention as you can to your most immediate and intimate contacts. You know, um, I've talked a lot about the how all of the social media mediated meta narratives can actually disconnect us from the immediate care that we need to give to the people that are <laughs> in our exact proximity. Um, and sometimes you don't pick those people. They're the ones, it's a family you're born into. Sometimes they're the friends that you've cultivated for years or neighbors that you've stumbled on by chance. And so there's a, there's something about intimacy too, something about the, the, the connection, you know? Um, so that's, yeah, the deep question, you know? Well, I, 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 uh, God, I relate to every single thing you said, but not just a bit, not, not like a lot. 
and there's so I want to. There's so much there I, I want to unpack. Um, the 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 soul making. I think it is Keats actually. Probably Hillman got it from Keats. It's a poem by Keats, and I, maybe we'll return to that later. But but the the because my late, my last book was called Soul Story, but the name I wanted to call it, but the publishers didn't let me, was Soul Formation. Oh, right. because it feels like that the whole thrust of this kind of cosmic evolutionary philosophy that I was trying to articulate in a very simple way led to that. And we should definitely return to that. And the intimacy thing is a really big theme for my previous work around awakening, which is like, yes, awakening, but here, right here with these, these people. And are you, are you, are you, a, are you a dad? Not a dad. Okay, so for me, it was that that really opened that up. It was just suddenly into that kind of like, uh, but the thing, I'll, let's go through it in order because there's so much there. Um, I have never heard anyone say the way you just said that, um, I forget what you said, the kind of the excess of meaning, that like it's so rich that you yep. can, and, and that is a very, well, that was a very profound start. Because I, 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 that's right. Mm -hmm. That's completely right. So say more about what, where you've, how you've come to that and what you mean. I mean, so my background is as a developmental psychologist and as a philosopher of education. And so when you look at developmental psychology, and then if you, if you extend it farther back as Piaget did, right, the founder, to look at, you know, biosemiotics and the experiences and skill capacity of animals and things of that nature, you realize that uh, it's not the case that meaning is in short supply like that problem occurs at a very sophisticated high level of cognition and it's different <laughs> than what permeates the rest of human experience which is that everything that occurs is meaningful right like we we slowly start to hone in on those things which we need to take as meaningful to survive in a strategic sense and so we actually we actually our brain <laughs> constrains the amount of meaning that we can take in in order for us just not to survive and so this yeah. is the experience people have in meditation or altered states where every <laughs> that that you know the doors of perception open and the the world just glows rich with meaning and significance and what's interesting is that this is related to this issue that there's some kind of moral or social fabric, which you participate in, which shapes your character and is part of that soul making. And so some of that meaning is not just like, whoa, it's so beautiful, but it's like, oh my gosh, like this word that I utter is important, right? Not like because it's a socially constructed reality, but like that there's a real significance to it. Like I've been a, a caregiver for many years uh, for my wife. Um, and so it was in that context that I felt that sense that you had as a dad of like yeah. entering the field of significance, <clears throat> uh, not of not leaving the playing field into, you know. <laughs> I really like that because so many people um, that I come across around spiritual awakening, which has been my major focus for my journey through this crazy, beautiful, terrible place, is has been that and my experience right from the start has always been in part meaning just like wow this is and so my the the intellectual side of my work as a philosopher has been to try and articulate what the hell is the deepest articulation of that meaning which arises in these deep awake states um and then it confuses me or not confuses me but i when i hear people as if it is purely a, a negation and and so all of that has disappeared or the it, it does it's not my experience it's mine is very right. akin to yours i think yeah no and, and there's there's kind of two angles on that one is as i said i'm working with this metapsychology model where there's development in soulment and transcendence and so there are completely development development soulment and, and transcendence okay okay so i'm, I'm probably going to guess what the transcendence is i might but but, te but tell me um, totally, what, yeah. what's the difference with the others and, and so this is actually grounded in Landry's metaphysics. I don't know, yeah, I believe you talked to Forrest recently, but it's I all that speak to Forrest recently. deeper than that. It goes into Charles Sanders Peirce and some of the founders of psychology itself. And uh, so development is what I was describing with Piaget and uh, cognitive psychology and other things that has to do with the kind of functional adaptation of the organism to the world. And people like Ken Wilbur trace development through a whole bunch of levels. And yeah. 
this is what's focused on human potential movement and in coaching and efficiency training and like self-optimization and work hacking and all that's moving development. <clears throat> and that's like usually a metaphor of like up and away, like up and like growth to goodness, right? Insolment is different. It actually captures most of the fields of like depth psychology uh, and analytical psychology, uh, dream work, um, and character and personality as aspects of psychology. The, the attempt of the metapsychology would say, first of all, psychology as a field is deeply confused, <laughs> incredibly fragmented, um, where ridiculous research projects are going on that <laughs> prove nothing and the best theorizing was often done years ago. And so it's just, it's a mess. <clears throat> so I was trying to just organize the field of psychology. And so these- so can, so exact, can I just check in with you there? So that, yeah. the insolvent thing, it reminds me of Hillman. You mentioned Hillman yes. earlier. Is that and, and it reminds me of that because I just had a wonderful conversation with my friend uh, Thomas Moore, mm -hmm. and he was talking very much in those terms about soul. Exactly. And so there's a whole, <clears throat> just like there's a whole field of applied psychology around development, there's a whole field of applied psychology around soul making, circling, <clears throat> psychotherapy, men's work, like uh, medicine ritual, and those kinds of things, all of that, right? Uh, and then there's transcendence, which is another field of investigation in psychology, emotional self-regulation, state, uh, biofeedback, meditation, things of that nature. <clears throat> and so development moves through stages, ensoulment moves through stations, uh, and you move through different state shifts or phases. What do you mean by stations, Zach? Stations uh, would be like, for example, um, pre-tragic, tragic, and post-tragic. That's my favorite one in the development of character structure and insolvent. Um, okay. And uh, so, the, yeah, development moves up through stages. And so, so, so do you mean that, that, that somebody w hasn't had a, an experience of tragedy, has the experience, and then is hopefully comes through it with the wisdom of coming through it? Is that the sort of... Yeah, precisely. And their stations, they're not like discrete developmental levels, <laughs> which okay. indicate uh, analyzable capacity they have to do with the stealing of character, right? And the, the basically the building of personality and, and relational capacity. They feel a little bit more like um, stations, like, like stations of the cross on the story, in the story, you know, that yeah. they're unfolding of a, uh, yeah. a narrative, like, like right. um, what's his name? The um, hero's journey, uh, Campbell, that kind right. of. Yeah, Hero's Journey is a classic example of, a, of an ensoulment dynamic, not a developmental dynamic, and not yeah. a transcendence dynamic, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? <clears throat> if you read the descriptions of meditation and uh, meditative attainments, those are tran transcendent dynamics. Transcendent, yeah. About drug experiences, like the Doors of Perception by Huxley and things like that, this is largely transcendent, although you'll get ensoulment. Well, it can be ensoulment too, can't it? Exactly. So, so then they all interrelate to one another, and there's a yeah. dynamic between them. But the, the reason I was... <laughs> raising this had to do back with the issue of meaning. And, okay, yes, that's uh, right. <laughs> just the idea. Well done. <laughs> and, the, and the idea that many people have about uh, spiritual awakening ends up being like a over-focusing on that transcendent. And yeah. in many of those states, it is actually, it is precisely the cessation of meaning making that is the liberating experience. Um, and it's particularly the stripping away Yep. of meanings that were related to superficial notions of identity and the replacing of those with meanings that are related to a much larger sense of identity, like happens quickly, like in yep. 15 minutes, if you do a medicine thing or a really good meditator. Mm -hmm. And so that notion of like transcendence uh, as the main modality of spiritual attainment <clears throat> has been a bias, I think, when Buddhism was imported to the West, let's say. <laughs> But if you move into some circles like Jungians and et cetera, Thanks, then the yeah. biases as insolment, as yeah. shadow work and circling and endless emotional processing and all of yeah. that stuff becomes the main event of spiritual transformation. And if you're a human potential person, <laughs> uh, then it's actually development. You want to move up the spiral dynamics ladder or attain you know, higher capacities and traits and things of that nature, when really all three of them are essential. And if you hyper-focus on any one of them, you get out of balance. And we all know people who 
have done a lot of meditation work and not done much insolment. They've actually insulated themselves from tragedy precisely to be able to neurotically control their own experience through meditation. Uh, and then others who could use some meditation because they're completely embroiled in the tragic and need to get out of the tragic into the post-tragic. <laughs> and then others who could care less about all that stuff and just focus on optimizing, making money and fitness and uh, things of that nature. So there's a general out of balance. And so the metapsychology is trying to hold all of those together and, and look at how things like spiritual attainment, um, but also, um, you know, relational dynamics, educational dynamics, how all of these, all three need to be taken into account, you know, basically all the time when you're doing work uh, in, in, with the psyche. Um, and <clears throat> so that's, yeah, so the oversaturation of meaning is one of those properties of insolvent, <laughs> like the deeper, so the, the down and in to the world, this is the insolvent process. And so you become more richly enmeshed in the meaningful connections of your life, fall deeper in love, put yourself at greater risk to have more tragedy precisely because you are falling deeper in love. So all of those yes. notions yes. are things that are aspects of insolment, which can be actually uh, ignored or denigrated if you focus just on the transcendent or just on, on development. Uh, and so that was essential. Um, uh, but again, like, the balance between those is is the real is the real goal so the yeah that notion of an over an oversaturation of meaning that the universe is actually overflowing with meaning that the sense that we live in a like disqualified devalued disenchanted universe <clears throat> is like a is like a very recent blip <laughs> in intellectual history <laughs> and in fact it's it misunderstands itself it, it attributes meanings to the universe kind of behind the scenes yeah and uh, without kind of admitting it as per said, like you're doing metaphysics, <laughs> you may yeah. either be doing bad metaphysics or good metaphysics, but you're, you're doing metaphysics. So, so yeah, that's one of my starting points. And as a psychologist, it's clear that, um, you know, there, there are forms of meaning making that are very important for psychological health. And uh, so, so yeah, so that's one of the things we're here to do is actually make ourselves healthy by making meaning together with one another uh, uh beautiful i love that um and and beautifully put um so maybe i'll maybe i can throw uh, back or offer back to you um this idea of soul of soul formation that i've been exploring um it requires a little bit of background and i'm going to just try and say it as quickly as possible without talking nonsense um, but I'm sure the, the much of it will be familiar because, well, one of the key ideas I think is in is in purse, for example. But so, um, like you, I think from what I've looked at, it, it seems that you know we're in this incredible evolutionary process of emergence. And what's fascinating to me about it is that, is that when I look at the nature of time, every moment is new. <laughs> which is obvious, but kind of interesting. And every moment, as well as being new, contains within it the previous moment. In fact, not just the previous moment, but everything. So that the past is implicit in the present. It hasn't gone anywhere. So it, the past doesn't pass, it accumulates. There's more and more information all the time in this process, which is why I think there's a, a tendency towards emergence and, and, and there to the new novelty, as Whitehead would say. So, so from that, and that's Percy's idea of the habits of nature and all of that, but it, it seems to me then that we can, we can say that the universe is kind of made of time. It's made of the past and everything in it. And so as a theory of identity, you kind of go, well, everything is its past. And that means all of Zach's past is meeting all of Tim's past right now. And the things that Zach can see comes from that. And the things that Tim can see comes from what my past and that we're meeting and now we're we're now part of each other because you're in my past and we will be forever entwined which means that if you then take this whole journey we've been on of, of, of 14 billion years from hydrogen to us having a conversation about the universe it 
what the latest thing, or certainly one of the latest things on the block is the psyche or the soul, this non-material domain, which is the domain of meaning. So the two things which relate to where we've been exploring that I wanted to put out there was, we are literally forming ourselves or co-forming ourselves because I'm my past. So I, I invited you to be part of a part of me and now you are. And so we're, in every moment, whether we do it consciously or unconsciously, we are actually creating our soul. We're creating who we are and the character of it. And so the, the whole process for us becomes a soul making process of, of, of consciously engaging with the evolutionary process, which for us is making a soul. And the meaning side, it feels like the meaning is also a very emergent quality, it looks to me, like it's come late. But the potentiality now at this exponential growth of psyche, which we're witnessing around us as the exponential growth of culture, but it's happening, actually, it's the imagination which is growing exponentially and which I suspect is a whole domain with its own reality now, which you can explore with psychedelics and meditation and journeying and all of that dying. So that we are the, the, the saturation, I think was a beautiful word you used with meaning, I think is where we're seeing, Oh, the potential for meaning is limitless. We can just find better and better and richer and deeper and hand it on to the next generation who can do even better at finding the meaning which is potentially there in this process. Mm. <laughs> That's a wonderful notion. I mean, there's so much there. And I mean, you must be wary. I've worked with Wilbur's theory and been at the Center for Integral Wisdom with Gaffney and collaborated with Barbara Marge Hubbard and read deeply in Tiliard de Chardin and and uh and yeah so this notion of the the self-conscious forms of evolution and it is true that human forms of reflective meaning are, are recent totally frontal cortex is key for that <laughs> but you know the the wolf howling at the moon it's a meaningful act yeah i completely completely so this is it's starting so yeah, I mean, there's everything just kind of goes back, doesn't it? Everything, right. any so, quality, you can just go back and back and back until you find because it's come from somewhere. Yes, precisely. And so, so that idea that <clears throat> the human, though, in particular, is positioned uh, with a form of self-reflexivity, which makes the meaning-making aware of itself, uh, is what you're getting at with the notion of soul. Yeah. yeah. And so, what's interesting here is that actually, like. Kantian notions of moral realism, if I can say it that way. So that we are, meaning is infinite, endless, but we can't just make any meaning we want <laughs> and still be uh, sane and uh, healthy. And so there's this sense of not an unbounded adventure into meaning but in fact uh there's a requisite or there's an obligate structure that we're stepping into um, it, it feels like that's the nature again because of the past because it has a character right like i have a character you know, like you know i do this and i talk in a certain way and i have a certain nature and everybody does and so does the world and so any meaning which i find has to be a meaning which can have the most abductive mm. right power to, to 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 make sense of what the fuck is going on right. and and how do i interact with it yeah, so there's the past and but there's the future too <clears throat> the future so, projecting it forward yeah exactly so much meaning actually is standing in relation to the future yeah uh, yeah and and that's an interesting dimension which again the notion of teleology and the the position of the psyche as inexorably teleological fact of the universe <laughs> uh, means that the, the future actually becomes more present with the emergence of the human than it's yeah. ever been in yeah. the universe. Yeah. And so that we live fundamentally in relation to the human. Yeah. Excuse me, that we live fundamentally in relation to the future. Yeah. And as Teilhard said, like the pull of the future is actually one of the main things. And yeah in a sense, freedom from certain patterns in the past uh, as requisite for the ability to answer the call of the future. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I, uh, 
yeah, there's so much, there's so much to say in the domain of evolutionary ontology and how that actually is relevant to the field of developmental psychology, <laughs> which is to say that there's a metaphysical underlaboring that can be done for psychology that positions the human psyche in the universe. Because that's the other thing that, <clears throat> excuse me, that psychology is missing in the field. It's actually its relationship to all other fields and its sense of that big history picture of what the nature of the universe so, is. So it's, you think it's, it's I, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I, I pass through psychological circles, but I'm not in them like you are. So, so is it, do you feel it's isolated? Like it's, it's become, I mean, it, I mean, the scientific psych, psychology seems very, uh, the impression I get is, it, I mean, when, well, when I studied it a long time ago, you know, I can remember the disdain with which my my professor greeted me when I went, well, I'm quite interested in Carl Jung, actually. <laughs> and, he was, and he just went, oh, yes, armchair psychology. And I was like, that was that finished. Yeah. And I'm not and I'm not speaking to denigrate psychology, but it is the case that uh, there are a precious few psychologists who take the psyche as an ontological problem and are worried about working on the background necessary to actually be doing anything like psychology as a science. Uh, so it's a deep question, which was never actually resolved <laughs> at the <laughs> end of the 1890s. And when you had Charles Sanders person, William James and the founding of the field, <clears throat> you had mostly philosophers and metaphysicians yeah. weighing in and yeah, yeah. eventually, and there's like a whole series of historical incidents that led to this when you had the ascendancy of behaviorism, uh, psychology started to move forward without a coherent underlying ontology and metaphysics. Um, uh, Greg Henricks, um, uh, Henriquez rather, Greg Henriquez, who I've worked with has, has written about this problem specifically. Um, and it is a, so here's the, here's the kicker, <laughs> is that if psychology starts to do that, and this is again, what the early like James and Dewey and those guys knew, was that then psychology has to deal with religious problems in a very serious way, because then you start telling a picture or telling a story psychologists do from the ivory tower about the cosmic dimensions of the human. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, mostly been taboo, like trying like a resuscitating a mystic neoplatonist cosmic dimensional human as like, that's what the human is from like Harvard and New York times. And like, that's what they're telling you the human is. Uh, and that, that is hard to imagine um, that there would be through the field of psychology, a return to a kind of deep resuscitation of religiosity, which is where you start to go when you start to deal with the deep time dimensionality, as you were saying, encapsulated in Zach. That's probably yeah, I mean, the problem. understand that. The thing we're wrestling right. with is, is, as a culture, it seems to me, is exactly that. There's this kind of this soul crisis, which is we've been cut off, literally cut off from it, because it's um, the, the intellectual mainstream, which I've just seen in my lifetime, just get stronger and stronger and stronger. That's why I've, I've had to engage with it in a way that I didn't when I was younger. I wasn't interested, but then just seeing it, just gaining this. It's when it's when it becomes like so common sense. It's like everything else is just a bit silly. So really profound things become just a bit you know silly. Right. And and there is woo woo. I live in Glastonbury. I don't know if you've ever been here. It's a town full of woo woo. I, you know I do like to uh, avoid it. But these other questions, these are really deep profound questions about the nature of existence. So if it turns out that really the psyche is just a side effect of a piece of meat and there is no meaning in the universe, then obviously there's nothing more to be done. But if it turns out, which is my hunch, is that the psyche is actually an emergent level of existence with its own nature and has become a whole domain of information in its own right. Um, and that that's what spirituality has been exploring. It hasn't really understood quite because it's old and you know we move on, but that's what it's been exploring then we're cutting ourselves off from not just part of, of reality, but the most emergent part of reality mm. and the place where actually we're doing all the work anyway, because it's the place where we're, we are right now. Yeah, I mean, the <laughs> psyche is the starting place for anything we're doing because we're humans. And, That's the and, and so it, it, it ends up being interesting that 
it is it is both, I would agree, a novel evolutionary emergent that you don't have human psychic experience in other species aside from humans, which is an obvious point. Uh, and that it's a it's a medium that is uh, capable of downward propagating onto the biological substrate yeah. in which it emerged, yeah. which is yeah. means that it's crucial to get this right. Yeah. Because if we don't get it right, then we're all going to die. <laughs> uh, that uh, which because it's yeah. getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and therefore the power is increasing through the imagination. Is, is that what you mean? And that therefore the danger to the biological becomes stronger because of the 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 weight of the of the soul. yeah yeah it, it is in part that it is in part because the we've built up cultural and technological systems that require longer and longer periods of education to re-socialize people into those roles so it's like when you're an animal species you're you're a beaver and you're building dams and you're building beaver huts that's basically what you do and you don't get into a situation where <laughs> you've built up a very complex infrastructure of beaver cities with sewer lines that now need to be maintained by specially trained beavers. This doesn't happen. So you're running on, let's say, the hardware nature gave you. The human moves beyond that and ends up being in a realm of freedom, which is not... Uh, bound by the same instinctual routines. So we can actually build ourselves a new situation of great peril, which would never have arisen <laughs> if we didn't have these big <laughs> brains capable of creating and stuff. I guess we've been stuff. doing that one way or another for quite some time, actually, haven't we? Yeah, precisely. And so so that's so it is the case that the the work done in the realm of psyche, and this is was the focus of my metapsychology, is the primary work that needs doing before most other work. Um, if you're thinking about solving problems in the world. Um, and so regardless of if it is about spirituality or not, there's a need to reckon with the life of the mind as we're seeing like the crisis in public culture For and sure. the, the nature of the imagination and the capture of the imaginal by the image on the screen which is one of the driving dynamics now. Um, the overabundant application of the commodity form to image and imagination and identity, um, those are the kinds of dynamics that could cascade into catastrophic risk, right? <laughs> that we actually, we, we're free in a realm of image. I'm not quite following you, Zach, there. Take me through what you mean by yeah. that. Why, so, is that, why does that, I mean, I get the image thing, but why yeah. is that catastrophic risk arising from that? So imagine an entire generation unable to form realistic images of themselves and of the world, right? So imagine a form of socialization, which becomes ubiquitous, which populates the imagination, which with images that are... Um, not real. Um, Not real mean, meaning? Meaning that it is a uh, static two-dimensional experience that was placed in front of you uh, by a social media platform that is basically trying to make money off harvesting your attention, right? So it's not an organic image that occurs in story and literature or that you pursue through education or that occurs around the dinner table or something, right? It's actually an image that occurs in the context of a communicative field that's been almost totally saturated with strategic and advertisement uh, related imagery. So I'm talking about peak advertising and customized <laughs> algorithmically optimized advertising so fundamentally disrupting identity creation patterns that we have a catastrophic bifurcation of intergenerational transmission. And we cannot reproduce at the level of complexity needed, the character structures and capacities and skills to keep our hyper-complex technologies. I, I, I come across that quite a bit, like, and people recommend me things to, I actually don't relate to it that much. Mm. Um, it may, you know, it may just be my narrow experience, mm. but what I see 
with my kids, their friends, or the, the young people I come across, is I, I don't see that. I see an addition to, not a, not a, I mean, obviously there's people we know who, who, who as with anything, who, who are caught in a negative thing with it and kids sitting in their rooms in Japan or whatever it is, you know, all of that stuff. So that's real, I know. But overwhelmingly, what I see is a kind of a new technology, a new, you know, something as big as the printing press, but open to everybody. And uh, we haven't come to terms with it. We don't know how to use it yet. But I don't, I, it feels, and there's dangers, obviously, serious ones, but overwhelmingly, it does, it feels much more positive than that to me. Mm. And that it, when I see my, what I see with my daughter, say, is, who's now 20 and all the way through that she's grown up into this, is that, that she's really connected with her friends. I kept on being, old people like me kept on telling me, oh, they're kids today, they're just not connected. And I'm like, they really connected you know when i was young we, we were with each other for a bit and then we had to go home now they're always together but they haven't lost that intimacy it's just increased so i, I don't know it, 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 it feels like much it's it's much more likely to say it's not to something catastrophic but something actually quite positive mm. yeah i mean <clears throat> there are undeniably positive aspects to the internet and social media in particular. Um, but as an educator and a psychologist who's looked into the overall effects of social media on uh, adolescent, let's say mental health and academic performance and things like that, I think you, you have to come down on the side that we need to start seriously reckoning with what we have created and actually doing national level legislation to control these things as if they were substances. Like the addiction rates for social media use among adolescents are pretty astronomical and correlate really strongly with increases in suicide and suicidal ideation. We're in a childhood mental health epidemic right now, uh, in the United States anyway. And one of the main culprits does appear to be screen time. Um, the incidence of adolescent political radicalization uh, and extreme ideological identification uh, has also increased greatly. And I'm speaking from primarily an American context, but it's a global issue. Um, and <clears throat> so it's, it's one of the main things that is on my radar as like a, this is more important than fixing the school's problem. Uh, from the dimension of like helping the next generation of kids take on the responsibilities that we're leaving them with. Sure. Uh, I mean, I, I, I certainly get that, you know, we've, we've, this new technology is, is very, it happens so fast and, you know, it's hard to. Well, and you have to look at the work that's done on surveillance capitalism and the work that's done displaying precisely the way places like Facebook and Instagram and, YouTube and Google were designed and the way they make money and see, I, uh, I don't know that I see that exactly because mm. it's like it's like this whole advertising thing I'm really I, I love it that when I get an advert which doesn't happen very much and I can usually pay to get rid of them if I want to um, but when I get you know the, when the adverts come it, it's not an endless you know they're not trying to sell me burgers and I've been a vegetarian since I was 17. They're going to sell me something I'm actually interested in. That feels like a service. It doesn't feel like these dark forces behind me kind of get into my head and, and get me. It just feels like, great. When I was growing up, we had to sit through the fucking adverts where you things you weren't remotely interested in, you had to sit there and then you could watch it. Now it doesn't do that generally. You can just flick it over, it'll come up on the side and it tells you something you may be interested in. And actually go, oh, actually, I'm quite interested in that. Thanks. And, you know, things like my wife today just said, oh, yeah, I've, I, I've just found this thing. And it just came up on my Instagram. It's what I was looking for. And it was like, great, there it is. Thank you, Instagram. That's exactly what we were looking for. That doesn't feel this dark. Now, so I, I feel a bit more like it's, it's a kind of a just mixed. And we haven't come to terms with it. A bit like, you know, when, when the people were the first with, the, with printing, what fascinating, fascinates me is the way people would just believe anything they read right. or, or saw in a cartoon. 
So if there's a cartoon of Napoleon eating babies, that's true. <laughs> and now, of course, we don't do that. And that we haven't reached that sophistication with this yet. And that's, of course, the young are particularly vulnerable. But they're also pretty savvy, aren't they? Again, I think, I think we're looking at different evidence. I'm different evidence, yeah, yeah. Different yeah. evidence. Okay. And, uh, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to paint a dark picture. Like when I describe the fact that these companies have explicit business models and uh, have published academic papers explaining how they manipulate their users' emotions and voting patterns. Uh, I'm not, that's not dark, that's just what happens, is, is the case. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the, again, when you look at the effect of, let's say YouTube in particular, on the nature of adolescent male socialization, uh, and the emergence of phenomena like the alt-right in the United States or the alt-left, uh, these things are directly connected. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, yeah. and so, so yeah, so it is true that we're on a learning curve. There's absolutely no doubt that yeah. these things got rolled out too quickly. And to my point about surveillance capitalism, without the right incentive structures to be educationally powerful. You know, in my second book, I write about the nature of the digital and that we have not even touched the educational affordances of what the digital actually provides because it's been captured by <laughs> really bad business models, basically, uh, that sell your attention to advertisers um, and disrupt your attention systematically. Um, you know, but, you know, I don't, know, would you, I don't want to get us too pulled into this, but I'm, again, it feels like, you know, and I look at YouTube and I'm, of course, you know, we everything's been democratized. Now, everyone, when I was growing up, very few people had a voice that anyone else heard. So you might aspire to be a voice that somebody might hear. Now everyone's got a voice. And of course, you can, your community now, I mean, I, when I was exploring Awakening, I had two people that I knew. And now, you know, you can connect. I literally, when I hold my meetups for my little community, we meet up, it's all over the world. I mean, it's all connected. And so that's why obviously you're gonna get the mushrooming of these groups. And, we, and you're right, we're on a learning curve. We've got, to, we've got to work out how we can get people savvy, getting people to be able to tell the difference between things, all of those issues. But when I, when I look at YouTube, I'm just like, wow, this company, I store hours of video on there. I'm gonna put this on there. And they're just gonna let me do it. I pay them nothing, nothing at all. And what they, what they, what they say is, and I'm gonna show you an advert you might be interested in. I'm like, it's a deal. Wow, what a company. They, they, also, they also show you other videos you might be interested in. Yeah, and show me <laughs> other videos, which resonate with where I've been. Now, exactly. that obviously can lead down a dark alley, but also it's overwhelmingly um, helpful and doesn't seem particularly malicious, well, not at all malicious. And, and the generosity in what they're doing, for me, makes me feel like, you know, I don't feel like they're manipulating me and they're, they're selling me, you know, taking my attention. It feels like, really, they're letting me explore, listening to you earlier, um, putting all my videos up there to share ideas that gives me a platform that otherwise I'd have to rely on publishers. And God knows that's a, you know, mixed blessing. And, and I have the power to just deliver it straight to people who want it. And people who might be interested in this sort of thing, there's a chance that they will find it. And if I want to invest in it, I can advertise my videos, which I've done um, with my TED Talk, for instance, so that people who are interested in this sort of thing, not anybody, not people who aren't interested and just go, oh, what's that? But people who kind of might go, oh, actually, I like the look of that will come across me and something good can come into the world. That, there's a lot of goodness in there, isn't there? Hmm. And again, I'm not denying the goodness. Yeah, yeah, I know, that. Saying, I know that, I know that. And I, I'm actually saying it, it's precisely because their goodness, that goodness is in there. Right. And that these things have become inescapable aspects of our lives, yeah. that they are subject to potential capture um, by incentive structures that make them much, much, much less beneficial to individuals and societies than they otherwise would be. That's, that's the claim. Um, yeah, 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 I can hear like, that. Uh, and again, when you look at the Facebook-induced... Uh... Anyway, so I think we would basically, unless we spend let, some let me, time... Let me shoot off on a tangent. Let me yeah, shoot on a big tangent. I, I think we're going to um, which is, just because I want to say these words, 
Cosmoerotic Humanism. Yeah, good. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Cosmoerotic Humanism. What is that? And particularly, I'm interested in your use of the word eros. Right. I'm interested in whether that links to Ken. And I'm interested in where Ken got it from, because I've never quite worked that out, but I have the feeling he got it from somewhere. And trying to understand what that concept means. Totally, yeah. I mean, so this is the work that I was doing, continue to do with Mark Gaffney, and Wilbur's been involved, and Barbara Marks Hubbard was there at the Center for Integral Wisdom. And so cosmoronic humanism is a, cosmoronic humanism is a, basically it's a, it's an attempt to articulate a, uh, a comprehensive philosophical view, it, a contemporary comprehensive philosophical view. Uh, and we focus on the notions cosmic and erotic uh, in part because of the provocative nature of that combination. And then in conjunction with humanism, it seems like uh, almost an intention. Um, so the attempt is to do something very similar to what you had described which was to retell the story of cosmos and to position the human in a meaningful universe, right. not a human emerging in an unexplained way, parachuting out of nowhere, coming in, making up all the meaning in the universe and then disappearing, not knowing what it was all about. But in fact, the human has part of a, a vast cosmic story, which is characterized by a movement of reality towards increasing connection and wholeness and complexity and consciousness and depth and meaningfulness and uniqueness and a whole bunch of other vectors <laughs> of the directionality of cosmic evolution. Uh, and so, yeah, the erotic is pulling from Gaffney's work in the Kabbalah and also pulling out of dimensions from Western philosophy like Plato and um, psychoanalytical traditions and folks like Hillman. There's a, so, there's so a movement what, towards. What does, yeah. mean, what does that mean, Zach? When you say like Kabbalah and other, so you, what's the, what's the, what does the word eros? What what does that mean for? I mean, love, but what does it mean? It seems to have a deep significance. That, right. That I'm I'm I, I'm I've never really been able to I get the love thing as most of what I've done is all about love, but I the the concept I've never been sure I've been clear with it what it means. Yeah. So when you think about like stories of cosmic evolution, like the ones told by yourself or Telier de Chardin or folks like that, and you ask the question like, what is it that evolves? Right. So you get different answers like Aurobindo's is one of my favorite Satchidananda right being consciousness and bliss that is what is evolving um, and so the answer to your question is something like that the substance of the universe is something like eros that the phenomenon at its most basic essence is something that we understand as being of an erotic nature. And it, the important difference here is to not confuse the erotic with love and to not confuse it with sex <laughs> and to understand it as a archetype of process, right? That it is a... Okay, but you're not using the word process. You're right. using the word eros. So what is the difference between going... Well, process makes me think of the term I use quite a bit, which is the old platonic idea becoming so you've got right. you've got this process yeah. of becoming yeah. but what's what makes it eros uh so the the qualities of eros which i mentioned that increasing connection and expansiveness and intensity of meaning of experience so the idea being that uh many of the phenomenon characterized in let's say dynamical systems theory or complexity theory, when you look at emergence and you look at the spontaneous formation of new holes yeah. out of what were formerly disaggregated parts, mm -hmm. that the coming together of the many into the one, mm -hmm. that that's an archetype of process, which when experienced at the human level is something like the erotic moving forward into greater holes of connection 
and so, basically so, love. So yeah. the idea of eros there is that it's bringing uh, the word I it, it, it's what well, I say is unividuating. It's it's bringing together individuals into a greater whole. Is that what you're saying? Like a There's holistic the, process. Yeah, but it's but yes. And is that complemented then by an individuating process? Yeah. Is- so the the erotic is again. It's the erotic is holding the polarities, right? Like the movement of the erotic is both the coming towards, but in the context of being different from, right? No, sorry, uh, you lost me. Say that again. Sorry. So like, um, it's weird if you look at yourself in the mirror erotically and you're like, want to move towards yourself and create a larger whole with yourself and be part of a field of meaning that you share with yourself. Like you do that with another in other. And in fact, difference is a prerequisite for something like erotic movement and dynamic. Okay. So individual difference is a prerequisite for it's a, that, that's the thing. together it, in it, the new The idea movement. is that many of the sub processes, which are necessary, to get the evolutionary thing going can be held under the banner of something like the erotic if you want to wrap human experience into that, right? Because you can't just call it consciousness. It's not consciousness, but consciousness is a characteristic of it. It's not just increasing complexity, but increasing complexity is a characteristic of it. It's not just increasing richness of meaning and potentialities for like relationality and love, but that is a dimension. So the idea is that we want to capture all of those and actually have a story to tell about like a dozen different <laughs> first principles and values that characterize the thrusting forward of evolution as a dynamic. And so I, we were searching for a word that was like that word cluster together hold, help holds it. And we we're looking for a word also that merges with the great traditions of philosophy and religion. Um, uh, and a word that um, allowed for the complexity of the human psyche. So Eros ended up being the choice. Um, and so it's a, it's a, instead of like being a pan-experientialism, which just character, which is just one dimension, <laughs> we talk about a kind of pan-eroticism. Um, and the idea there being that the whole universe is being drawn into these so, dynamics of intimacy and relationship that increase experience and intensity. Okay, so it sounds, it, it, so what I'm hearing, what I'm getting anyway, maybe more of it, um, is it relationality really, that, 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 the, that there's a, a, a phrase which I'm using a lot right now because it captures the very simple beginnings of things for me is, is, is what exists is not the one, it's the one in relationship with itself. And that, that relationality, it, it, what, what it reminds, what, actually this really helps me because um, one thing I've written about in the past when I was writing about Gnosticism is the, the Orphic myth um, of the birth of Eros in the, in the mysteries of the cosmic egg, the one breaking into two and giving birth to Eros, which makes the two one again. And so that that kind of resonates for me with what you're saying is that yeah and and that was the problem is that there were there were too many base archetypes of process that characterized the evolutionary movement of the cosmos which is to say that there was something like the many becoming one the emergent new there was something like you know relationality just increasing connections between things was happening there's also something like a deepening of intensity of experience, greater awareness, consciousness, and more saturation with meaning. Some of the stuff we already discussed. So we were looking for an overarching way to, as a, have a meta-theoretical frame that could hold all that stuff to begin starting to investigate it systematically and thinking about the way that um, the human as cosmic <laughs> participates in this. And so part of cosmoerotic humanism also involves another strange combination word, which we call anthroontology, which is a methodology, which says basically that like, you can understand the universe through your experience, <laughs> uh, that science is in fact only that in a very refined way. <laughs> Sci- that's, the scientists, scientists begin with their own experience. And Brilliant. so creating descriptions of the universe 
which disqualify the universe and make the human hard to understand in relation to the rest of what's going on, like that they parachute out of nowhere and just make up all the meaning <laughs> and that it's a random chance event and who cares? It's the, you know, like all of that way of thinking uh, is anthro-ontologically doesn't make sense. Like yeah. Yeah. That, that the human being is actually able to make a very profound meaning of the world, uh, which cannot be overridden by certain forms of kind of scientific explanation. So anthroontology is one of the bases from which we position our methodology to begin looking at clarifying all of those different qualities of arrows, which constitute the moving forward of the universe. And the goal there is to be able to then, as I said, with psychology, position the human in the universe in a way that revivifies the religiosity of our experience, right? And that it's, it's not just my meaning that I'm making, I'm participating in a field of meaning. That, that my desire and love as a caregiver is not just kind of like a creation of my meat machine, that I'm actually participating in a field of significance that's much broader than me. Uh, and that the feeling of merger and closeness and intimacy and the intensity of the experience of that is erotic. It's not sexual and it's not love like a romance novel. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's erotic. You're drawn into it, even to, into tragedy. You're drawn into the merger with it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so it is, so that's cosmoerotic humanism. That's a, a long-term research project at the Center for Integral Wisdom that will involve a series of books. But it was an attempt to um, reposition integral theory and theories of uh, conscious evolution and Irvin Laszlo's systems theory and my metapsychology and, a few, and Mark's unique self theory and a few other things trying to get that under one roof <laughs> and to get exactly this issue of there's so many different trajectories of evolution which have been traced by different theorists. What's an overarching way of thinking about repositioning the human as a meaningful part of the evolving cosmos? What are the languages and concepts we need to do that? That's basically the project of, of cosmoerotic humanism. Um, and yeah, as I said, it, it emerged out of Gaffney's work, which was originally a cosmic humanism, which was pulled directly from um, sources in Jewish mysticism that were looking at the way to understand the merger between God and the human. And specifically the way that the human hands are the hands of God. That the work that's done to build ourselves in soul making, <laughs> uh, that in its ultimate understanding and one's anthropological experience of it is a mystical activism that there's a, that the, yeah, so that, that's like the source root in the tradition, but then there's echoes of course in, in other places as well. Um, and anthro, uh, excuse me, uh, cosmoerotic humanism has been building over the years, you know, as Gaffney and I have, have worked on it. Uh, Daniel Schmachtenberg has been involved, Wilmer's been involved, Barbara Marks Hubbard, um, Michael Beckwith, a bunch of people. Uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll see where it goes. You know, we'll see where it goes. There's, there's many ways of telling this story that you like, and you have your own way of telling the story. And it is one that is, I think, timely and necessary. Yeah, uh, I think that it's the great, it's the great uh, task in this area is right. to find that story. So yeah, what I've been up to is very similar. Yeah. Um, and, and probably for very similar reasons, um, except probably I'm uh, doing it more, I've been more isolated in it. I mean, I've, I mean, I've met Barbara and, and you know, I do connect with other people around it, but the, the, uh, it's intriguing that you've been able to work together with, with those people. So my, my, th my work at the moment is going under the name of Univigilism because I found I needed a word that it was leading to because I wanted it not to be just about a story of the past, but actually a story of the future, which right. is what you've said. So that I, it felt one of the, one of the key things that, that had come out for me with my work on awakening was wanting to position the individual, not as the impediment to awakening, but the foundation for it. Right. And that therefore the forming of the character of the soul was the way in which you could allow these transcendental deep awake states to, uh, um, to emerge and to feel that enormous love and, and that profound communion and oneness. Right. So that, what the the 
the vision which animates me is that we're, we are, I don't know how fast it's, this is happening or this is no prediction or anything like that, but that there is a movement from the individual, this intense individuation and individualism, which has just been explosive and is still increasing. And I, and I think probably rightfully so. It's been a great thing. Mm. But obviously it's not going to end with that. And that after individualism comes what I call univigilism and within the idea of a univigil being an individual conscious of unity. And I see that increasing in my lifetime, just in the way that the amount of compassion in the world seems to be so much greater all the time, that there's a real, lots of people care for other people on the other side of the planet that they'll never meet. And historically, I'm sure, you know, right. it's, it, this is not, happened before it's quite yeah. different and and it's cr with species cross species all of that stuff and then also that when i started talking about oneness when i was you know, 30 years ago most people thought it was abstract now most people go oh yeah i've experienced that or yeah i want to experience that or there's some the transcendent states are not for other people it's like yeah. more and more people so it feels like we're moving there and that the the, the the philosophy needs is it needs to support that that evolutionary process. And exactly. so mine, mine is really looking for much more of a. Uh, I, I mean, I'm working on a bigger book right now, but the, the wanting to get a narrative, with, like the simple, the 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 simplest way of getting across the deepest aspects is what I totally. tend to focus on. That's my beautiful. thing. Yeah, we have focused on the notion of homo amor, <laughs> which is counterpoised to homo sapien, the notion that, as many of the evolutionists have said, there's something new emerging that's an, almost like yeah. a new kind of species. I, I suspect that we're talking about exactly the same thing. Exactly, it's exactly the same thing. And, and so homo amor, it's, it's not just awareness of awareness, which is homo sapien, it is actually the merger into the social field of, of yeah. care and concern, yeah. as you're saying. Yeah. 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 And the interconnection back to the internet, which is awesome, <laughs> although, it has, although it has problems, uh, you know, the whole world is completely interconnected. So our yeah. capacity to have compassion for people that we will never meet uh, yeah. is through the roof. And that's one thing we struggle with. That. We're overwhelmed by, yeah. Yeah. by the tragedy of the world without feeling we have the capacity to respond to it. So yeah, there's, there's a, it's a critical moment of, of growth and maturity for the species. Um, and so, yeah, we, we try to do work to promote the emergence of the Beautiful. individual or homo amor or I love, many, many other, I love that. Other that's a great, that's a beautiful, beautiful description. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, totally. and the, the thing, you know, this is probably a great place to home in on to, 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 to complete our time together, Zach, which I've loved by the way, um, it is, is, that, you know, the thing which is, you know, I started off with, hey, you know, what do you make of this? And I've been exploring this now for whatever it is, 61 years. And the only thing I really know, and, and I don't even know if that's the right word, is that what matters is love. Mm. There's a different right. quality to that, to anything else. Right. This is anthropology. It's right. like, there's, there, the possibility for skepticism is huge. Yeah. But if you're really honest with yourself, there are things you do not doubt. Yeah. <laughs> and some of those things are the love you would have for your wife or child. Yeah. And you're absolutely correct. And that's sometimes the answer that I give that we don't have to go metaphysical or ontological or anything. Um, that we can return to the center of being here now with people we love. And this is real, as real yeah. as you can get realer than, let's say, quarks yeah. and string theory and, and, then, and neurons. And then it's, like, it's like, it's from that, from that love, which is so precious, like for that person, right, right the way through to this enormous kind of all-encompassing. Right. right. Now, God. this is the cosmoerotic insight. That's oh, exactly right. That God, it's just, yeah. like, just yeah. so big. It just pulls you apart. Right. And, and. And, uh, you know, my, my whole focus it hasn't been the last 10 years. I've got more philosophical for my sins, but the, the, the fundament, fundamental thing has been about, right, how, how can we get more people and me? How can I be more in that? And how can we be more in that together? Right. Yeah. Because if we can reach that connection. And, and I just wanted to throw one other thing at you as well, because it resonated with what you're saying around Eros, which really helped, by the way. I really started to get right. that concept much better. Um, 
it's that looking i forget the phrase you used about the ontological anthropic ontology anthropology when i was working on soul story i developed a very uh, something which kind of sounds a little bit similar anyway Mm -hmm. when i started thinking this this great sin of anthropomorphizing the past you know about the universe so the universe intends this or it does this and all this stuff which it's clearly not doing is obviously a mistake but it also felt to me like we said this a bit earlier but everything which is here now has come from what was there then and that so that if you everything must trace back everything must go back and back and back and back and back so if we're talking about love then you could probably trace it back to you know the first fish that didn't eat its babies and you know all of that stuff right and 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 so actually you can if you do it in that way you can take your human experience and see the universe has arisen as this right. from something yeah. which was the potential yeah. for that. Yeah, and we and we need permission to do that in a scientific culture which tells us we're not allowed to do that. And I think the mistake is that people think doing that somehow replaces science, when in fact the goal of something like cosmoerotic humanism would be to find a way to translate the findings of science into the language of the life world, right? Yes. And so yes. the you know the idea that we are right now, you and I, able to do this because of things that are occurring and supporting us that we are ontologically completely dependent upon, which we have no <laughs> ability to affect, like the moon and the sun and even these internet connections and other things, you know. Uh, so that that ability to kind of surface the fundamental questions uh, and bring them into connection to life now <laughs> is what the philosophy needs to do to catch up with the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that, that the conversation went this way. I'm thrilled to talk about cosmic humanism and, uh, and have enjoyed this tremendously. Well, thank you for making time to, um, and we're can, like we said, you're in, we're in each other now forever. And that's, right. a, a, in, in this instance, a lovely thought. And um, yeah, I, I, I've been fascinating to, to share your beautiful mind and your big heart. And thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you, Tim.